Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon. And in this episode, we have Chris and Nick, who are the founders of With Clutch. You can find out www.withclutch.com. The two met at Stanford Business School in 2011 and started their first company in 2013 after going through Y Combinator and raising $10 million in venture funding. Chris and Nicholas sold Carlipso to Carvana in 2017. Their new business with Clutch allows car owners to calculate savings and refinance their loans from the comfort of their home. This was a great episode, fun episode going through Nick and Chris's background before GSB, how they became entrepreneurs, how they decided to actually start start Carlipso, and then even going through the process of raising funding and eventually selling to Carvana before starting their new business. We go through all of that. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review. And finally, the weekly grind, my weekly newsletter, tips, tools, strategies for growing a business can be found at justgrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here are Chris and Nicholas from With Clutch. Nick and Chris, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to do this and talk about a lot of different things with your background and what you're working on now. And actually, that's where I want to get started. So With Clutch, tell me, like, what is With Clutch? What do you, what's the big vision with this company? Yeah, cool. Why don't I take a, I take a step at this? So... With Clutch is a fully digital platform to refinance your auto loan. And you may ask yourself, refinance your auto loan? I thought you can only refinance mortgages. Um, if, you, if you look into uh, funded mortgage applications from 2019, 47% of the funded applications were, were refinancings. In the auto space, it's very different. In the auto space, less than 5% of the people refinance their auto loans. And so we saw that as a huge opportunity to start a business. With that too, so you notice that, but how do you how do you notice this idea in the first place? Because not everyone would say, "Oh yeah, that, that's pretty obvious. This is something that we need to look at." Like, where where is this opportunity? Like, how did you guys find this? Yeah, really good question. So that goes back to our first company. Actually, we we started a company called Carlipso after Chris and I graduated from Stanford Business School in two thousand thirteen. And so back then, we built think of Amazon for used cars. So we're selling used cars online. Um, to do so, we, we became a licensed dealership, and as a dealership, if you want to sell cars, you also need to offer financing. Otherwise, customers come find, fall in love with a car, but if they can't pay for it because they need a loan, you lose them. The conversion basically goes down a lot if you then send them out to get their own loan. And so we signed up lenders. We were in the position to give our customers financing, and then we realized two things. Number one, the lenders allowed us to determine what interest rate to charge uh, above and beyond what the bank requested as a minimum. So if, if you, for example, Justin applied for a loan, the bank told us Justin should have a 7% rate. The bank then said, well, if you want to mark it up to 9%, feel free to do that. And you get the majority of the incremental profit from doing so. And we said, huh, that's interesting. So that's the way dealership makes money. And then the second thing we noticed you will probably go on and make your payments for the next 6, 12, or 18 months and improve your credit. And if you improve your credit, you actually qualify for a lower rate, but nobody tells you that you should refinance your auto loan and get a lower rate. And so yeah. these two insights, the fact that you mark up, the dealer's markup rates, number one, and number two, 
that people increase their uh, improve their credit over time but are somewhat stuck in the loan they got a long time ago in a very different situation led us to look deep in the market and then we realized auto refinance auto loan refinancing is just not a thing yet and people just don't know it's possible does that make sense yeah and it does make sense and and to that obviously there's a lot of questions that go along with that then and what I want to do though is just kind of go back to you both met at Stanford Graduate School of Business, but real quick before then. So I'll start with you, Chris. What were you doing even before Stanford? Yeah, so before Stanford, I went to uh, well, I was growing up. So in the <laughs> in that time, I guess I went to school um, at MIT. I wanted to study engineering, and I I always actually wanted to work for a Formula One team. And so like my my goal growing up was, hey, I want to design engines for uh, Formula One cars and win races, et cetera, et cetera. I got to school, started doing some mechanical engineering jobs and was like, this is not at all what I expected. I'm a very like, I'm a, what I call like a macro thinker. And so I don't like getting super, super deep in random details. So like when I found myself doing engineering, it would be, you know, uh, doing this um, benign seatbelt bracket. <laughs> And so I really wanted to look more holistically at the entirety of the car and figure out like what are the key concepts that we need to go here. And I just thought I was so far off that career that I was super impatient. So um, I ended up uh, like a lot of folks in 2006, 2007, I ended up working for a big consulting firm for McKinsey for two years under the guise that maybe I could work advising auto companies and sort of uh, jump up the corporate ladder, um, you know, Luckily, I didn't end up working for auto companies because I had great experiences doing lots of other random things. So, um, you know, casino business, biologics manufacturer, but ultimately I wanted to get back into cars. And so I went and followed um, uh, one of my McKinsey bosses who went to this startup electric car company called Coda. Um, and so they were trying to import this car that was made in China into the U.S., there were all sorts of reasons. I, I spent about six months there and then realized this is definitely not going to work. And that's <laughs> why I ended up business school. Amazing. And Nick, how about you? As you can hear, I'm, I'm actually not from the US originally. I was born and raised in Germany. Um, I used to play on the German golf national team for four to five years and then decided to not turn pro, but went to college, studied computer science and finance, worked in uh, renewable energy for... For two and a half years, uh, we invested in projects in India and China. And then I decided I, I really wanted to go to tech. Figured that going to business school in the Bay Area is probably a really, really good way to get to get into the community. And so I moved to the U.S. in 2011, which is when I met Chris at Stanford Business School. And then we, we ended up going on a study trip. Business school is a lot about bonding experiences and... and one way to do so is traveling. So we traveled through Southeast Asia, and he had Chris had just finished his internship at McLaren, and told me the car space is really interesting because building cars, making cars, is not actually a really good business. Most of the money is made on the dealership level, and within the dealership, most of the money is made on what what's called back end products, financing and insurances. Um, and so he suggested, why don't we buy up? like raise money and buy up a number of what's called buy here, pay here dealerships. That's the dealerships that give loans to their customers who are primarily um, subprime. And so we looked into that and discussed the pros and cons of such a business when all of a sudden all our classmates asked, asked Chris, who was the resident car expert, for advice on how to sell a car. 
And then before we knew, we started selling our classmates' cars. And uh, all of a sudden, we slipped into potentially starting a business. And then advisors encouraged us to do so, gave us capital. And then we started a business where we helped customers sell their cars from peer to peer. So I would help you sell your car to somebody else. With that too, just backing up a second then, you, you both decide to go to business school. Did you think that you'd be entrepreneurs afterwards? I mean, because just like thinking about overall how people end up becoming entrepreneurs, some people think, oh yeah, I've always kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur or I have these kind of entrepreneurial ideas. Was that even in your mind when you kind of started business school? Chris, what was on your mind? I would say no. Um, like I, I think I had romanticized it, but I never found a clear path to actually being able to do it. And I think, like, I think there's an unspoken word of a that it has to be like you have to be more familiar with it a, and then b like there has to be some level of financial comfort around it too. Whether that means that either a you've come to terms with the fact that you can earn money elsewhere or B you've got a willing spouse or partner who can help you or three, you've got a family who can, who is like a backstop. And so for me, it was like the plan of business school was actually to take a two year break and figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. And I ended up, ended up getting this dream job as an internship working for McLaren only to realize that that sort of wasn't a path forward. And so like, I think Nikki helped me realize that it was actually possible to do it. Um, and that, it, that there was a, a pathway to doing it. And then my wife was super encouraging and saying, look, like, you know, we have a way of making money. So it's, it's not as though we're going to struggle making rent. And so, you know, having a little bit of a, ha having a dual income uh, safety net was super helpful. Having someone else to be encouraging to like see a path forward was helpful. And then my logic from that point on was, Hey, you know, the opportunities to get a job will always be there. The opportunities to sort of strike at this opportunity now won't. And so I would regret not having done this. And it, it, it's harder to make this come together later than it is to make a job come together later. Makes total sense. What about you, Nick? Did you think you'd become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I, I um, looked into banking and consulting right after undergrad. Those are the, the jobs where all my peers went to and, and had a good time and, and earned good money. Um, but I, I didn't find it entrepreneurial enough. I didn't feel like I was actually actually doing what I'm most excited about is creating value, trying out new things. Um, and so I, then I looked around in Germany, where are the entrepreneurial opportunities and what are startups doing? And all of that happens in Berlin, which that's a really fun city to live. But at the time, most of entrepreneurship in Europe, in the tech space at least, was looking to the yes and trying to figure out which, which business to copy. So the, it all started actually in the 2000s, early 2000s, when eBay launched, and then these two, three brothers who are entrepreneurs in, in, in Germany started copying eBay, sold it to eBay, and then the same thing happened uh, in, in other spaces, be it with ringtone companies or even uh, even Amazon and, and Zappos. These guys were copying, and then, then all of a sudden when Groupon came up, that was a little bit of a gold rush because... You could you could start these businesses so easily and so quickly, and so I I realized that value was being created, but it wasn't the way I wanted to create value. And then I looked to the US and said, well, maybe maybe I need to move there and and become an entrepreneur there, where I start something that other people haven't tried before. And so I I went to the US with the with the intention to start a business after business school. That's awesome. 
but then nobody nobody tells you how to start a business <laughs> um and so chris has strong opinions on the, the right steps to take to start a business um we really only stumbled into it and i think that's part of of how entrepreneurship works yeah and i think i've seen that a, a number of different times where people stumble into entrepreneurship or they're accidental entrepreneurs and you know it's an idea is presented in front of you or there's a challenge you're trying to overcome or something that's really annoying to you that you want to solve in this terms of this problem and that you know kind of forces people into it if they have even like an inkling of of wanting to do something that's more creative and more entrepreneurial so going back to you guys then having these classmates, you know, helping them sell their cars. At what point did you decide, like, yeah, let's turn this into an actual business? I, mean, I think the, the trigger point of making Carlipso into an actual business was uh, Nikki had a conversation with a professor. But, like, I think we were, we were exploring this concept. I think we we're going along saying, hey, we hope this can become a business. But I think it was more exploratory than it was finite of, like, this is definitely what we're both doing and we're going to move fully ahead. I think the reality is it took outside encouragement to make it seem like it could really become true. And so Nikki had this conversation with one of our professors and trusted advisors, and he said, hey, you know, this this is actually sounding really interesting. And you came to me to talk about what job you should get, but it sounds like this is worth pursuing. Like it reminds me of how a lot of other people started. And so, you know, I'll help you guys out and I'll, I'd be willing to invest the first 50000 and so uh, that was really the trigger point. So Nikki came back and I remember I was, I think I was doing some fiberglassing on a project on my porch and he goes, Hey, we have a problem. And I thought, okay, well, what's the problem? And he goes, well, you, ha I had actually accepted a job working for this private equity company. And he goes, well, you know how you already accepted a job. We have somebody who wants to give us money to start this business. And so now we have to pick what to do. And at that point, I think, uh, I knew it was easy because, you know, private equity will always exist and I, w I would be no less qualified a year and a half later, but uh, this opportunity seemed like it could go away to coordinate everything coming together. So I called the PE company and said, sorry, I'm not showing up for work. And then we started. That's awesome. And and Nick, I know that uh, looking through like LinkedIn profile, I mentioned something around like different classes that were influential at Stanford about like customer discovery process. Can you talk about that customer discovery process for the company once you guys have started to, to decide to do it? So, so there, there's a number of classes at Stanford and Stanford Business School, and there's a design school that talks about like idea generation, ideation. So all of that is super valuable. The, the one framework we used, um, which the same advisor who then encouraged us to, to start the business had been teaching, is the uh, first step in a startup is find value. Don't worry about how to scale it. Don't worry about what the final product will look like. Do things that don't scale, but most importantly, find value. And so Chris and I were, as I said earlier, we were looking around and trying to, to explore whether or not we want to buy a number of dealerships. Um, when, when all of our classmates all of a sudden approached us and said, hey, can you help us sell our car? Or can you actually do it for us? And so at first we laughed. We said, we all just graduated from business school together. Why would we end up selling your car? And then, then Chris realized, well, clearly there's value. Otherwise, they wouldn't ask me for it. So why don't we do it? And so we started selling a bunch of cars, and the feedback was really positive. And so we, we checked that box where we, we just found value. Now let's figure out how we can provide the value to more people. And so we started experimenting around how to remove ourselves a little bit from the process because it was very time intensive. 
Um, and so that's how we that's how we stumbled into it. And if it hadn't been for the class, we we wouldn't have structured our thinking that way. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have realized that people coming to us asking for help is a really 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 strong signal. Yeah, and one of the things too, just that we haven't quite discussed yet that we can't gloss over, and this is kind of an evolving thing as well. Looking at you know founder relationships, relationships between founders of companies, uh, obviously very important. And that's a, one of the reasons why so many companies fail is having issues with founders. What, what were you to? Uh, I guess I love each of your perspectives on like what were you thinking around? Oh, of course I'm going to start a company with Nick. Of course I'm going to start a company with Chris. Like what was that dynamic between the two where you were comfortable enough to say, yeah, like we want to work together? Maybe Nick, if you can start. Yeah, sure. Good question. So. It's true. A lot of founders down the road start not getting along as well anymore because it, it is a relationship, right? You're building a relationship. You don't know the other person very well. In in our case, obviously, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. So I can't tell you that we did everything right. What I know is true for the two of us is that our value systems are very aligned. We We were in it for the long run. We weren't in it to make a quick buck. Instead, we really wanted to have an impact, number one. Number two, the way we make decisions is relatively aligned because um, we, our opinions don't matter, neither to us nor to the other person. It's all about having an idea and then validating with data whether or not we were right. So we, we never thought about things where I think our name should be this or no, I think it should be differently. Like these things that are very subjective, we never thought about. Instead, we try to find ways to quantify whether or not one or the other person was right. And then we, we just went for it, committed some time to exploring, and then we measured whether or not we were right or wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Chris, I'm curious about your, your perspective too on like how you kind of thought about it. Um, I don't think it's that different than what Nick said earlier. Like I, I, I think we had pretty similar viewpoints here. And so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be adding too much. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that totally makes sense. And like I'm just always curious because that's something that I don't know if a lot of people think about, uh, especially early on, like, you know, how much vetting do you really do or how do you kind of decide on that founder? Because a lot of times it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're, I know this person and we're going to work on this thing. But like if it, if it becomes a, a bigger thing, it's, it's really there's a lot to think about in regards to what skill sets do you have and all of that as well. And just thinking of like, like who's going to do what and what are the roles and responsibilities and then uh, everything with that. But um, moving forward in the business a little bit, when you graduated then from Stanford, you went full, take me to that, that, that process of then you got this initial funding, like what was the kind of the next steps and what happened after, after Stanford? Sure. So, so we spend, I guess the next four to six weeks after graduation, selling the cars and more and more people gave us cars and then left the area. So we were really busy selling cars. Um, <laughs> then I always had in the back of my mind, shoot, there's like this natural decision point coming in at the time, four weeks where Chris was going to start a job that he, he wasn't particularly excited about. And then I had the conversation with our advisor. He offered to be the first investor. I turned around and told Chris, we have a problem. Indeed, those were the words I used. Um, and then we sat together and said, okay, how much money do we need? And so we came up with this rather random amount of $250,000 would probably get us a year of learning and we can make progress and then figure out whether or not this is a business. And so we asked ourselves, do, you, do we think we can raise that? And we said, yeah, that's probably possible with among friends and um, investors we knew and then even lecturers and professors who do angel investing. So Chris went ahead, quit the job. We sent out emails to the first group of people who we felt those would be interesting people to talk to. 
it wasn't a Friday. Uh, remember, the goal was to raise two hundred fifty thousand. On Monday, we had commitments of more than three hundred fifty already, and we hadn't even had the conversations with the people who were actually doing investments. And so that felt very encouraging. And then we we ended up talking to the first round of angel investors. Told them now the goal needed to change because we had already had more than we needed or than we aimed for. So we told the first angel, okay, here's what we're doing, and we're raising five hundred thousand dollars. And he said, I'm in, count me in for X. But just so you know, if you think you need 500000 you should really raise seven hundred fifty. We're like, okay. <laughs> so same day, second conversation. Here's what we're doing. We're trying to raise seven hundred fifty. And he said, I'm in for X. But just just so you know, if you're aiming to raise seven hundred fifty, you really want to raise a million. <laughs> oh, man. And so we said, we just did that. And then, uh, yeah, this is a testament to the... the the entrepreneurial mindset in Stanford, we ended up closing at $1.2 million and obviously raised a much bigger run than we expected. Had a lot of runway to experiment a lot and then everything happened automatically from then on. Well, first off, that's awesome. Uh, that That's that's great. Obviously, you had a good idea and something that hit home with people that uh, that made them want to invest and also being in that environment clearly was, was helpful from that perspective as well. Um, but with that too, like what were you thinking in terms of use of funds? And so, you, you know, you get this 1.2 million, which is considerably more than 250K. Like yeah. what was your guys' conversations or thought process around, okay, like what is the initial use of funds once we have this? Like how, how do you think about that? Christy, remember how exactly we thought about it? I mean, I think we, we came up with a model, which is, a, to be honest, it's sort of a best guess of what you're going to do. And so we said, hey, you know, we need an engineering team of this size and we're going to leave this for marketing and then we're going to raise Series A in 18 months because – you know, a rough rule of thumb is no matter how much money you raise, the venture cycle lasts 18 months before you need more. Um, and so, you know, we had a rough thought out idea for what was going to happen. Uh, you know, did everything occur exactly as planned? Definitely not. <laughs> right. Like everything got thrown out the window, I think, by like month four, uh, because, you know, the reality is you're a little bit optimistic in how the how the business takes off. And so you model a hockey stick curve and then you haircut your hockey stick by quite a bit. But even, even then, I think, you know, we ended up breaking our own business very quickly. And so when we looked to scale Carlipso as a peer-to-peer model, we reached a peak of about, you know, between 50 and 60 cars before we realized, you know, the next Mortal car is not easier, it's harder. And so this doesn't actually speak that well for scaling up something where every unit is more difficult. Yeah. And with that too in mind, which is obviously in terms of uh, tech investing and investing from VC money, like which would eventually come more, like they want a huge return. And so uh, that type of, of thing, and I don't necessarily saying that it was VC investors and could be angels and stuff like you said, which is, uh, which is technically could be different. But with that too, then as you figure that out, like knowing that problem, like what did you decide to do? You had this issue of, you know, you're not getting any economics that are better as it, as it grows. How did you approach that? Yeah, so we, the, the challenge we had is we, was we weren't growing fast enough. And so we asked ourselves, what are different ways we could achieve more growth? And we felt maybe, maybe it's a, it's a way, like the problem is accountability. Maybe we're not keeping ourselves accountable enough and setting targets clear enough and then pursuing them. And so we decided to join the startup accelerator Y Combinator, which is known for, for growing companies, for producing this hyper growth in startups. 
And so we joined that accelerator program for three to four months, had a really interesting and good experience, learned a lot, but also learned that when we tried really, really hard, A, we were already pretty hustling pretty hard compared to a lot of the other companies. So we, we did well on that dimension. But when we tried even harder, we, we provided worse customer experiences. And that's when we realized we were doing things that didn't scale and then they didn't scale. And so encouraged by the partners at YC, who a lot of them invested in us, they said, just just experiment, figure out things that, that you've thought of that could work. And, and just don't be shy at stopping what you're doing right now, firing your existing customers and try out new things. You've learned so much, you'll find something. And then sure enough, we, instead of working with peer-to-peer, so consigning the vehicles of private individuals, we ended up in a model where we consigned vehicles of, of institutions who were selling cars, be it leasing companies or rental companies. And so overnight, we went from having 100 cars in inventory to 30,000 that we could potentially sell. The, the prices were lower because structurally we were tapping into a cheaper inventory. And we were dealing with much more rational sellers and not private individuals who always think their cars are worth more than they really are. And so sure enough, we, we started offering cars for very attractive prices and found segments where, where the difference between the normal retail price and the price we offered was so high that uh, people couldn't, could not, not buy from us. It was so compelling. Even if they found reasons not to buy from us, the price was so much lower at positive margin for us that we started acquiring customers. And, and then based on that model, relatively soon after, we raised, uh, I think, $8 million Series A. Take me through like knowing that going, you, you figured that inside out and that, that changes things completely. You know, you mentioned going from like a hundred to like 30,000, like how does that change then operationally? What you, what, like, what did you guys do at that point? Because that's such a huge shift, a huge uh, a change in the business. And obviously it led to the series A, which is, which is incredible. But like, yep. how did that shift like your operations and like, what did you do at that point? Because it had to be a much different than scenario and like how you're looking at the business. Chris, do you want to take this one? Um, well, why don't you take this one, Nick? That's okay, a, sure. That's so, so the reason Chris probably encourages me to take this is because Chris was working on marketing and data a lot, and I, I actually ran the operations. And so in both models, the cars were not with us. In both models, the legal owner of the vehicle or somebody else was in possession of the vehicles. And so when we did the peer-to-peer, it was the private person who had parked the car in the street. And when we moved into the consignment model with institutions, the cars were all, most of them parked at the wholesale auction. The wholesale auction is the marketplace where dealerships buy the inventory from. And so we, by advertising many, many more cars than we advertised the day before, we were generating a lot of traffic and leads because we we listed these cars on these listing platforms, you name it, cars.com, autotrader, car gurus. And since we were structurally lower priced than anybody else, we always ended up first in the search result page. And when you search in the first in the search result page, you get all the calls very quickly. And so we had these conversations and the hard part now was not generating demand. The hard part was explaining to our to the people on the other side of the phone what we're doing. Because we told them, yeah, you want this car? Great. So I need to get it first. And like, what? I want to come and test drive it. We're like, yeah, you can't test drive it. You'll get seven days to test drive it if, uh, and you can return if you find mechanical issues. And people said, no, I don't want that. That's bait and switch. 
And so we needed to iterate a lot on explaining what we were doing. And then, and then at some point landed on a, on a way to explain it that made a lot of sense to a lot of people, especially in a specific segment uh, among Uber drivers who were not very emotional around the cars, for example, or uh, people who had a vehicle on lease and just wanted to replace it with the same, same version but lower miles. And so we had to iterate on messaging. We had to iterate on explaining to customers what we're doing. But then slowly and gradually got much better at it. And all of a sudden, people started ordering these cars. And our operations generally changed from um, taking a lot of phone calls and coordinating to we need to pick up a car that's already been sold, quickly recondition it with local local vendors, and then wait for the customer to show up and pick it up from us. And in the meantime, we were trying to figure out how to obtain financing for the customers. And so we became much closer to a traditional dealership than we initially were. Yeah. And, and Chris, can you take us to like the marketing side of that? So obviously the messaging part of it, but even like the marketing growth side in terms of user acquisition as well, like I, take me through like that kind of strategy with Carlipso. Sure. Um, you know, the, 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 the marketing, I would say we were really good at the quantitative elements of marketing. We were not as good at branding and that's, that was a shortfall that, that we only learned later. So, you know, our, our view of the market was cars are commodities. And so it's basically a commodity pricing game where everyone's selling the same steel for the most part. And it's just a question of, can you deliver the steel most effectively in a way that consumers still trust? And so what we did is we basically said, look, we've got an unfair advantage where we're looking through 60,000 cars a day that are available in these wholesale auction markets. And so let's go through and look, let's look at where there are voids or spaces within existing listing engines to either have advantageous pricing or supply that no one else has. And so we developed the scoring method saying, look, what we really want to do is when someone searches, we want to essentially be on the first page of any search for a car. And so that we get there either by price or availability. And so let's look at all these opportunities where we could be there. And so we basically developed this engine that said, okay, let's go. Let's theoretically sort order every car by how advantageous it would be in marketing. And then we would cherry pick which cars we'd want to advertise. And so out of the 60,000, we might only list six to 700. Um, and so that's really how the marketing worked. And it was able to generate a tremendous amount of leads. And so like, you know, I, I think towards the end, we were developing somewhere between 200 and 250 leads a day. Um, on uh, you know a, a, a tiny marketing budget, and any dealer would tell you that that's, a, that's, that's an absolute ton. Right, a yeah. dealer closes almost ten percent of leads, and so that would have been twenty five sales a day. Um, and so we didn't get that high, but th that's sort of the volume that we had. Now, what we didn't do is we relied entirely on our sales force to sort of tell the story of why this was different and why consumers should care. And so. That, that's an area where admittedly we just didn't understand or we didn't put as much weight on sort of branding as possible. And we said, look, we can figure that stuff out later. So let's, uh, you know, customers will call in and then it was left up to a sales guy to try and tell the consumer, the car's not at my lot. I don't have an address. You have to buy it online. Here's why I don't have better photos. Like it, it felt like a defensive sales call in many ways because the customer's expectations were great deal. I'm going to come in and buy it. And then you had to sort of ratchet back from that of, well, you can't come anywhere, A, because I'm in an office, not a dealership lot. Yeah. And B, like, we won't, we don't have it until you buy it. So, <laughs> and so it, it, 
if, for someone who was new, this was intimidating because they just got run over by a consumer. And I think that's where we could have invested a lot more in branding and figuring out how to get ahead of the message without the consumer being so, uh, you know, taken off guard by all these things that were changed. Yeah. And with that too. So even thinking about the salespeople and everything, everything else, like the team itself. So the team behind us, as you guys are growing and, and building this team, like take me through like what that process was like, the, the hiring process and like how, or what were you looking for from your cultural standpoint or a skill set to build this team? Cause you know, I guess if you have the wrong hires early on, it can be crushing. And especially if you're doing sales and relying heavily on salespeople, you need good salespeople. I'm curious about that side and how you can approach the people side of, of building your team for Carlipso. I, I think, there was skill set needs and then there was opportunistic hiring. So I'd put those in two buckets. And so, you know, early on, um, it, it was sort of a mix of both. And so we knew, like, for example, we knew we needed a, a, a head of technology, right? And so there we ran a very active process of let's reach out to everyone we think would be good. Let's figure out how we can identify these people. And so we scraped GitHub, reached out via LinkedIn, tapped into our network of friends and friends of friends. Um, did tons of interviews, worked through recruiters. And so we did all of this stuff to try and find someone who was really good. Um, and so that was like an active outreach. The other sort of opportunistic hiring was, you know, we had heard someone really good was available and someone that we within our network knew them and thought that they were very capable um, or someone had actively reached out to us. And we ended up hiring because we thought they were so good. And so like our head of marketing um, was a super sharp guy, very process oriented, who actually came to us through one of our investors who we thought was, was really, really good. Um, and so it was sort of a mix of both. Um, and some people, you know, we knew we didn't exactly need them at the moment, but that it was close enough in terms of timing, A, and then B, like we had confidence that they would steer themselves so we didn't have to look for things to do for them. So they would just be getting ahead of our own problem. And so that, that was a little bit how we thought about hiring and growing the team out. Yeah. And then going back to what we talked about with, with kind of that inflection point and changing the business model and then going up to like 30,000 cars and then being able to raise that series A, like how did that change? Like what was the changes then? Like once you had raised that series A, take me through like what was kind of that next phase then or that, those next steps uh, for Carlipso as you were growing it after that point? Yeah. So, so the initial team at that point were let's call them like like a little group of hustlers like we were probably seven people hustling still in a garage literally in a garage um, <laughs> and then we needed to take a step back and figure out what are the things that that don't scale right now as they are and where do we build technology and where do we hire people because they're much better at doing it and so we 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 transitioned we moved out of the garage into a warehouse um, this was actually a nice office with the cars very close to us. So engineering and marketing and sales, they, they could always see the product that we ended up selling, which was encouraging. And so we, we went from finding hustlers to finding experts in each of the roles. Chris already mentioned our, that was our VP of sales and marketing at the time. He had done a very similar job before and was exceptional at it much better than we were. And so we replaced like our band-aids with, with real people who were really good at what they were doing. Um, we, for example, hired a CFO. She, she took care of like the books. And since you're, when you sell cars, you move a lot of money. Um, like all of that had to be in much better shape than it was. We 
we then needed to find sales team leadership, which that's a, that's that's hard and tricky. We actually had an incredible sales guy and wanted to make him a leader, but then realized, and he, he was pretty upfront with it, I'm not a strong sales leader. I'm a very strong individual contributor. And so we iterated on that front, um, made a lot of mistakes and, and, um, and, and learned. On, on that point, exactly, because that's one of the things I always am asking entrepreneurs. I mean, what were some of those like mistakes? Was there, was there, was there a mistake or two that stood out um, or kind of looking back at that time, even uh, with Carlipso that you either wish you didn't make or, or things that for anyone listening, things to avoid or things to kind of think about beforehand, if possible. Sure. Yeah, so there, there was there was a moment, Chris, I'm curious if, if you had the same moment in mind, but there was one moment where we felt hmm, the sales model doesn't scale very well. Like we had we had tried to work with one or two sales leaders already and we didn't get to the economics where we needed to be. And so Chris and I already had a gut feeling and intuition that told us the sales model won't grow. Maybe we need to think about something else. But since we had gone through a really exhaustive effort to find a strong sales leader, we happened to run into somebody who was incredible and exceptional. Um, it, just an incredible guy would hire him any second again if he wanted to work with us. Um, and he was very confident around the, the model. The sales model said, you have a problem I can solve. I can manage these people. I can get them to produce. And he said it with so much confidence that he convinced us to give it another try and to place a really big bet. And so we went through the third round of bringing in new salespeople, changing comp structure, changing script, changing training, and ultimately ran into the same problem that we suspected. It, it never scales big enough. People can't sell enough cars, and you can't hire enough really good people to do so for it to be a very, very big business. And so I'd argue we should have trusted our intuition at that point more than um, have somebody who was incredibly incredibly good at what he does convince us to give it another try yeah I, I would totally agree with that i think the other big moment for me was you know one of the there's an expression that's saying you know culture is the worst behavior that you tolerate in some ways and so when we started Carlipso, like all the culture and the norms of work and the intensity was like permeated the organization and so everyone just sort of did everything not that we asked them to but it was almost implicit of how everyone was sort of com completely in this mission with us. We started hiring more and more engineers and San Francisco is a weird place because, you know, engineers are, are very, very tailored to in some way. And so to get more talent, we, we sort of started being more flexible with things that we weren't as comfortable with. So like at first it was flexible work hours. So, hey, you know, you can work any time of the day that you want. And then it was work from home policies. And so it got to a point where everyone ended up on their own flexible work hours and work from home to where no one was coordinated anymore and had never sort of developed the systems or discipline to do this. And so we hired a guy who came in at 2 p.m. on his first day. It was like, hey, you know, this, this is my flexible work cycle. And it <laughs> only got worse. Um, and so at some point, and then everyone, everyone took this as a sign, like the guy coming in 2 p.m., everyone took this as a sign that they could sort of do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted in terms of flexibility because we had tolerated that and said, okay, well, we kind of did say flexible. We didn't sort of mean like that. Like 10 a.m. is probably the, you know, the, <laughs> the upper limit of what's probably acceptable. Yeah. And pretty soon we were actually, we didn't care up and until the moment where things didn't seem to be moving as fast as they should. And so when we tried to change back, it was only like it, everybody felt like we were taking things away. And so we're like, well, yeah, we're taking things away because 
this isn't working, right? Like, so like, I'm sorry that we have to go back on all our promises, but part of the agreement was this only works if folks are delivering and each of you as individuals might be delivering, but the like cohesive unit is terrible right now. And so we ended up having a huge churn in the engineering org and almost redoing the entirety of how engineering worked. And it was the right thing to do. And I would stand by doing that again. Yeah, it's funny. That reminds me of uh, I don't know, the story I heard about like a plane having Wi-Fi. And then as you take off, they say, oh, Wi-Fi is not working and people are so pissed. But if right. the plane never had Wi-Fi right. access in the first place, true, no one's yeah. angry. That's just the standard. You know, you have it and you take it away. It's it makes people upset and and with that too then so like as as the company progresses so Carlipso you have this idea of you know, in business school you progress from there Chris decides to not get a job to go pr- pursue this it goes well enough to get the Series A you get Series A funding eight million dollars and where does the Carvana acquisition first kind of come in in terms of like a company wants to buy you like where does that even come into play Yeah, good question. So we were heads down and focused on selling cars for four years. Um, what we ended up selling was a software company. And and so let me walk you through what happened. We we started selling more cars and like in terms of numbers of cars, we actually became a very meaningful player in, in the region where we sold most of our cars. So that worked out nicely. But then we hit this inflection point where the next car wasn't easier than the previous one. And it actually got harder. That was because we tapped out of the market of people who use who consider cars a utility object versus an emotional purchase. And so an emotional purchase without photos entirely over the phone just didn't work. And so we took a step back and asked ourselves, what's the most valuable thing we can do with what we've built? Um, because it seems like this company is actually a more profitable company if it stays small. And we had a very good friends at Carvana, got in touch with them, told them, hey, let's just compare notes so we can learn from each other and told them what we had built. And since we, we, were, we were selling cars before we bought them, so we need to be really good at describing these vehicles. And so we, we walked with our, our friends at Carvana through what we had built and they said, you know what, you were forced to build something that we are now starting to build and we'd love to get some help. So why don't we just combine the efforts? You bring on your team, and then you apply what you've built at a much, much, much larger scale. And so we discussed that with the team, discussed that with the board, and we all agreed this is actually the best outcome at, at that time. We were thinking, or we could have raised more money at the time, but we, we, we just didn't believe that we could fix these fundamental problems of the model that, uh, that would have then ended up in a bigger company. And so that's how we ended up selling a software to Carvana, which which Chris integrated and now has been has been powering a lot of the systems over there. Was there any? I mean, was it just like kind of a consensus at that point of like, yeah, this is clearly we can't really uh, solve this right now with what we're doing, or we don't think we can. Like, I mean, was it consensus across the team on that decision? I'm just curious about that. I don't think it across the entirety of the team. Like, I remember our our, our CFO thought maybe you know. Um, maybe if we just try a bit harder and see if we can replicate what one of our folks does, then there's still like, I think she was more a fundamentalist. And so fundamentally we were selling cars sight unseen online. And so she was saying, Hey, you know, like this is working at least to some degree, like maybe it's a question of optimization more than it is restructuring. Looking back, what's really interesting is, when when you start a dealership, it's very very different. A very difficult, sorry, to to sign up lenders so you can give loans to your customers, 
And so, although we hustled and did our best, we found lenders that were that we could use to finance prime or super prime customers. So people with a credit score of better than 700. We, we didn't have any lenders that would help us finance customers with a credit score below 700. And it turns out that's actually the majority of the population. And we didn't realize it at the time, but not having access to lenders who finance loans with a credit score of less than 700 was actually the one of the major reasons why our model didn't work. When you when you sell a car to somebody with a credit score above 700, he has he can choose from wherever he wants to buy. He he doesn't have any problems to get financing, and he just chooses what's best for him. And you and I would do the same thing. Um, and so the expectations are incredibly high, both with regard to customer service and with regard to the object you're selling. And so especially in the Bay Area, where people experience incredibly high service levels from all the companies because that's where all the startups are from. The expectations of our cars were incredibly high. Our cars looked incredible. Um, versus if you finance somebody who doesn't have perfect, perfect credit, the conversation actually centers more around the loan and the financing and the monthly payment. And then what, what the customer is buying is a, like a transportation solution that he can afford more so than a vehicle he's incredibly proud of. And so had we had financing, we I think a lot of the ideas that we still had would have worked much better and we would have decided it's worth to pursue our company longer. But since there was no way for us to get financing because lenders just don't work with these early stage companies, we, we were missing out on a large chunk of the market that would have been very profitable for us. Yeah, that, make, that makes total sense. And then with that transition then into the new company, I mean, was there, cause I was, there's always different things with acquisitions, uh, a set timeline on you guys staying on, uh, did you, I mean, you want to keep building this. So that was something you want to do as part of acquisition. Like how was that kind of structured? You don't have to go too de too detailed, but like, I'm just curious. And like, was there something in place for that? Did you think, did you guys think like, oh yeah, let's just keep building this for, for a number of years. Or like, how did that, how did that go then? Yeah. All, all these, all these transactions have some sort of lockup, but our main motivation was not to monetize and then walk away. We were very good friends with a, with our colleagues, peers, and executives at Carvana. And we were all in the same boat. Our mission was to bring used car sales online. And so the, the prime motivator was, let's 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 make this happen. Let's see it through. And so we're really, really thankful for, we, we ended up staying for yeah more than three years to see it through. And I'm hopeful we had a lot of impact and the systems we built and integrated worked really well. But yeah, the main motivation for everyone involved was, are we aligned with, uh, with regard to what we want to build? And then let's get, get to work and build it. And so it was really fun focusing on building that. Yeah. And then circling back to the beginning with, with Clutch. Now at With Clutch, like you, you kind of mentioned a little bit of what the, the plan is for that. Like where are you currently at with, with that business? Like what's the current uh, like state, of, state of that business now? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the state right now is we've just launched. Um, and so we've got, we've got a lot of the basics in place. It's not as though we have everything absolutely built out. And so we launched on Tuesday. So currently a customer can go on there. They can s go through our entire process flow where basically they submit their phone number and then we pull in all the details about both their credit and their loans. Um, and we have a means of getting them, uh, refinancing offers through a third party. And so everything sort of exists in its most basic state. There's still a ton to be done. And right now, uh, our process isn't as, like the process of figuring out whether you can get a loan is uh, smooth, but it's not as smooth as we need it to be. 
and the process of like solidifying everything is still um, is still ongoing. And so there's a lot to be done, but we're uh, we're out there. That's awesome. And then just to tie everything kind of together, and just to be also mindful of time here, you you both you meet in in Stanford Business School. You decide to start a company, end up selling the company. And now you're on to another company together, and you didn't originally think necessarily that you'd be entrepreneurs. Uh, and now you've been entrepreneurs for a number of years. Looking back at the last, you know, six, seven, eight years of of this, any particular lesson or takeaway that each of you want to give around your your entrepreneurial experience so far? I, I can start with this one. So. These things take much, much, much longer than you expect. So there's <laughs> when you when you look at startups and the ones that are success, successful, and people talk about it, it always looks like this is an overnight success. Like somebody had an idea, put it out there, and it took off. This is not true. This is not how these things work. It's a ton of work. If your main motivation is money, don't do it. You really need to be motivated by the cause. Um, and then you need to be patient and, and you need to be willing to deal with a lot of disappointments and failures because you, you iterate yourself towards something that works. And one day you wake up and all of a sudden you have something everybody wants, but it's a process. It's not an overnight overnight thing that happens. Yeah, I, I would just echo that. I think they, it, things take longer than you expect, A. And then B, I think every once in a while, too, you have to be willing to step, take a big step back. And so I think, you know, part of what we did at Curlipso is just think if we just tried a bit harder that things would come to us. And the reality is if we had taken a big step back and just, you know, researched, not researched, but like learned more around how other folks were doing it and tried to draw other lessons from other, other dealer groups or other startups in the space. I think if we had just taken some vacation and a big step backwards to view things more holistically and just get our minds out of continually being in the same thought process again and again, that you need to take vacations, you need to take breaks, you need to maintain this mental sanity in order to, to really have clarity of thinking. Yeah. And I actually really love both of those things. Like going back to the time thing. I mean, it always takes longer uh, just from talking to, you know, hundred plus entrepreneurs at this point in terms of interviews, it always seems to take longer than, than they expect. Uh, and I think we, especially even now, just short attention spans, whatever, it, it just, the understanding of, of patience and to build a company and especially a, a meaningful company, uh, it's just going to take time. Uh, and that's, that's something that's like super important uh, on that side of things. Uh, and same with what you mentioned as well, Chris, like things that are just like people need to understand who are, who are entrepreneurs and building companies. And that's why I love doing these interviews because there's so many takeaways from people who have actually actually done it. I mean, to have started a company, sold a company, uh, and, and now onto another company as well. And I think that's just super important insights. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And, and where can people go to uh, learn more about With Clutch? Just go to withclutch.com. Um, you can submit your phone number and then you go through the flow where we tell you whether or not you have an auto loan worth refinancing. Or if you want to connect with us, just go to LinkedIn, look for Chris Coleman or Nicholas Henriksen, and then we'd love to connect. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com newsletter. This is filled with tips, 
tools and strategies for growing your business. You wanna know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Just go grind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.